Good morning. Today is Monday, May 23rd, 2022. Those who are celebrating Victoria Day, happy Victoria Day. Pirkei Avos is the volume of the Mishnah that deals primarily with how to lead a meaningful life. And there are many people who study this work in this season of the year, but of course the lessons that are in it apply every single day of our lives. And I'd like to dwell on one Mishnah. It's in the first chapter, Mishnah number six, and it is a teaching from Yehoshua ben Prachia, Yehoshua the son of Prachia. Now, just as an introduction, he was a very, very interesting person. He was a great scholar. He was the head of the Sanhedrin, the head of the great court in Jerusalem. In about the second century before the Common Era, during the Hashmonoim monarchy, during the reign of Yanai, who was a Hashmonoi king, also known as Alexander Janius. And what we know about him is that originally he was a very modest and private person. And then he became one of the strongest, most vocal leaders of the Torah community of his time. And the Talmud, in a different place, tells us a very interesting comment that he made. It was about himself, and it had to do with the corruption of personality that is caused by exercising power. So the Talmud quotes him as saying, Originally, I would have cast to the lions the person who proposed my name as head of the Sanhedrin, meaning I'd never wanted any kind of honor or position or prestige. I would have been run away from such a thing. Now that I have been appointed to the post, if anyone would suggest I resign, I would pour boiling water over their head. I assume he didn't mean that literally, but I assume that he meant to point out the corrupting influence of power for everybody and recognizing the possibility that every person could be affected, for me to recognize that I could be affected, for you to recognize that you could be affected, is the first step in guarding that we are not destroyed by it. It reminds me of a, of a, of a story I once heard told by Rabbi Yisrael Belsky. Rabbi Yisrael Belsky passed away a few years ago. He was the head halakhic authority for the OU for many, many years, which means that he was the person deciding how Jews all over the world would and could keep kosher. He had a tremendous influence on thousands and thousands of students and tens of thousands of followers and admirers. I had tremendous and have tremendous respect for him. He was a great scholar, an amazing human being. And I once had the opportunity to hear him speak in person to a small group of rabbis. 
And I heard him tell this story. And I want to confess to you, I don't have the honesty to tell a story about myself like I'm going to tell you what Rabbi Belsky told about himself. Uh, that's just one minor difference uh, between Rabbi Belsky and me. Of course, there are many other much more important differences. But So he was talking to a group of young rabbis, and he told the following story about himself. He said that many years ago, he was a young rabbi, newly ordained, newly in his first position as a rabbi. And it was the first time that he had attended a wedding where he was honored to be asked to say one of the Sheva Brachos, one of the seven blessings. So usually at a wedding, seven people will be called up to offer uh, blessings to the bride and groom under the chuppah and very often the greatest rabbis who are present will be honored to, to say one of these brachos. And um, so they called up his name to come up to say one of the brachos and he didn't hear it. He wasn't paying attention because he was a young rabbi it didn't enter his mind that he was going to be honored at this wedding. So he just, he just was not paying attention to that. Until suddenly, the person sitting next to him tapped him on the shoulder and he said, they just called your name. Go up to say your bracha. At the next wedding he attended, Rabbi Belsky told us, he was already listening to the names to see if they were going to call his name for the honor. All right. But he was, as he rose in prominence, a remarkably humble man, in large part because he recognized that he, like everyone, is affected by honor and ego, and he took the steps necessary to remain humble and unassuming throughout his life. And that is what Yeshua ben Prachia is teaching us. And I'm presenting this as background and introduction because it's relevant to what he teaches in this passage. Yeshua ben Prachia Omer. Rabbi Yoshua, the son of Prachia, used to say, Make for yourself a rabbi. Now, usually we translate that as acquire for yourself a friend. I want to start with the second half first. Sounds a little strange. Kene, often translated acquire or Buy for yourself, purchase for yourself a friend. What does that mean? How do you buy a friend? It's a very, very strange kind of a phrase. I will ask you to remember a discussion that we had together some time ago in a very different context. This word kine, which comes from the word kinyan, which is used to mean purchase, often understood to mean purchasing something, but that's not what the actual word means. 
What it actually means, a kinyan, is an action that creates a commitment, an action that creates an obligation. Now, it may be a commitment of acquiring something, but it could be some other commitment. It could be some other obligation. And here, in this case, it certainly does not require purchasing or buying, but as another rabbinic source elaborating on this points out, how does one acquire a friend? A person should acquire a friend by eating and drinking with them, by studying with them, debating with them, by sharing private thoughts with them. And Rabbi Beryl Wine explains that a friend is more than just a social companion. A friend is hum someone with whom we can share even dark secrets and embarrassing situation. A friend is not a sycophant, but rather someone who criticizes in a constructive way and comments and supports and comforts. Friendship is always a two-way street. And in order to have a friend, there must be an expenditure of time and emotion, and openness, and honesty. And this is very important advice. And we should all extend the effort and the energy to develop friends like this. Let's go back to the first part. Make for yourself a rabbi. This is necessary and crucial for every person, necessary for me personally. And I'd like to take a couple of minutes to dwell not on others relating to me as a rabbi, that's not our subject for today, but how I relate to those who are my rabbis. Who do I, who does every one of us need as a rabbi? Well, the first question is, why do I need a rabbi? Why does every one of us need a rabbi? I mean, thank God I have the opportunity to spend time, not enough time, but some time studying Jewish law, having the answers to certain questions. Why do I need a rabbi? Well, I need a rabbi for a number of reasons. Number one, I need a rabbi because there are many questions I do not know. And I need someone to be able to ask who knows a whole lot more than me. And even in terms of Jewish law, where I have the ability and the opportunity to research the question, I know what the issues are, I know what the opinions are, but I still need to be able to have someone I can trust and rely on to guide me in what the final decision should make. Just knowing there are differences of opinion doesn't help someone decide, well, which path to follow. And I need to be able to have someone not only with expertise, but with experience to be able to guide what should the final ruling be. And that's especially true because anytime I have a question, I am no gay abadavar. I have a personal motivation. 
And that means if it's a question that affects me, if it's a question that I'm trying to figure out the answer to, I have some kind of personal bias. I may be unconscious of it, but anyone who asks a question has some kind of bias. And the fact that I don't see what my bias is when a, when a question arises in my mind doesn't mean that it's not there. It just means that I don't see it. And the more sure I am of the answer to a certain question that I have, when there is some kind of bias, even if I don't recognize it, especially if I don't recognize it, the more sure that I am, the more I have to check and make sure that my answer is going to be correct and not affected by my bias. And so I need to be able to have someone who not only has greater expertise than me, but has objectivity. And I have to recognize that I can always lose my objectivity. And I have to check what I think with someone who is objective. Even when it comes to an issue outside of the strict boundaries of Jewish law, I need to be able to check with someone who, again, is objective who can see the situation from more points of view than just me in order to be able to find the right path. So how do I choose? How do I choose rabbis for myself? Well, of course, I look for expertise. I look for availability. Got to be able to reach the person to know that I'm going to be able to get a response from them. I look for a feeling that I can respect that person's opinion and judgment, even if I don't understand it, even if I disagree. But if I have a question in Jewish law, for sure, and I ask my rabbi, I've got to follow that. So it's got to be someone that I'm going to be able to respect and honor, even when I don't understand, even if I disagree. Another factor that I look for was expressed by Rabbi David Wolpe when he said, a rabbi is like a quarterback in football. So if you're a quarterback, so you're throwing the football to a receiver, so the receiver is running. When you throw the football, you're not throwing it to where the receiver is standing at that moment. You're throwing it a little bit ahead so that as the receiver is running, he will catch up to it to be able to catch it. And a rabbi has to do the same thing. A rabbi has to challenge people, has to throw the football a little bit ahead to where he hopes they will grow. Now, that's a very delicate art, as any quarterback will tell you. Because if you throw it too far, the receiver won't be able to reach it. If you throw it too close, the receiver won't move forward. This is comparable to an insight of the Kutzka Rebbe. The Kutzka Rebbe, and I've quoted this before as well, points out that when we say the Shema, we say the words that the words of the Torah should be al-levavecha, which literally means on your heart. 
Why do we place the words of Torah on your heart and not in your heart? The Kutzka Rebbe points out that sometimes the other person's heart is not open. Sometimes they're not able or ready to receive the message that you want to give them. So you place it on their heart. And when they reach the moment where their heart opens, when they reach the moment where they're able to catch the football, then that message is available for them and they have grown. Let me share another sports analogy. I have an uncle, a beloved uncle. His name is Uncle Sidney Katz. May he live and be well. We've been close our entire lives. And he's a special person because he taught me so many lessons in life. One summer, I was probably 14, 15, maybe 16 years old maybe 17 years old, something like that. And somehow that summer, I was spending the summer in Memphis, which is where I grew up. But after I went away to high school, I wasn't there very much. But that summer, I was in Memphis the whole summer. At that time, I and my entire extended family was very into tennis. Tennis was very, very big. And at that time, I was actually pretty good at tennis. I haven't played in decades, but at that time, 16, 17, I was actually pretty good at tennis. And that summer, however it arranged, Uncle Sidney and I played tennis together several times a week. Maybe neither of us had anybody else in town that we really wanted to play with, but somehow we connected over tennis that summer and we played very often and we really enjoyed playing with each other. It was, it was tremendous. For me, it was tremendous. I hope it was for Uncle Sidney. And he would teach me these lessons just, just like along whatever else we were doing. And he once said to me that summer, he said, do you know how you should pick a tennis partner to play with? He said, when you're looking for a partner to play tennis with, you should look for someone who is a little bit better than you are. Because if they're so much better than you are, it's just not going to be fun for them. You know, I mean, it's like a lesson, but it's not really a game. You're not going to both have fun. But if the person is not a little bit better than you are, you're not going to push yourself to play your best game. So you want someone a little bit better than you are so that you are always pushing yourself to be a little bit better to equal your opponent. And of course, it's not just a lesson about tennis. It's a lesson about life, about how to cause yourself to grow, and it's a lesson about how to choose a rabbi, someone who will challenge me, someone who will cause me to grow, to work harder, to be better than I otherwise would be. Rabbi Beryl Wine, for many years he was a rabbi in New York, and 
in the last number of years, and currently he is a rabbi of a synagogue in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem. He is a rabbi's rabbi. Now I have the great privilege to actually be related to him by marriage, but I've known him for many, many years, and I've learned so much from him. He told the following story. When he moved to Israel, in his neighborhood, the mail was collected at the post office. And so you would go to the post office, to your post office box in those days, to collect your mail. And he noticed he was relatively new to this neighborhood in Jerusalem. And he noticed that in his mailbox, there was lots of mail that was put there that was not addressed to him. It was addressed to other people. And so finally, he went to the manager of this post office and he asked, why is it that all this mail addressed to different people you're putting in my box? So the man said to him, we have a policy here in our post office. And that is, any mail that comes and we don't know who the person is, we put it in the box of the rabbi because we assume the rabbi is supposed to know everybody in the neighborhood. And so if we don't know who it is, we assume you're going to know who it is. And Rabbi Wine comments on that story that he has never heard a better definition of the responsibility of what it means to be a rabbi. And that's certainly a characteristic that I look for in choosing a rabbi. I want to share one last story. This is an incredible story told by Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau in his remarkable memoir, Out of the Depths. And if you have not read this, I urge you to read Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau, Out of the Depths. It's an incredible, incredible work. Of course, Rabbi Lau was the chief rabbi of the state of Israel, the Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel. And he held many other important rabbinic positions before that. And after that, he is one of the greatest Torah leaders of our generation, an incredible person. I've told you a number of stories about his life, but here's another one. In 1960, Rabbi Lau... Yisrael Merlau at that time got married and he married Chaya Ita Frankel, whose father was a rabbi in Tel Aviv named Rabbi Yitzchak Frankel. And very shortly after that, it was during Chol HaMoed Pesach, the intermediate days of Passover, and he and his wife, newly married, were spending the days, the holiday, with his in-laws at the home of Rabbi and Mrs. Frankel. The, who was, and he, again, was the rabbi, Rabbi Frankel was the rabbi of the neighborhood in Tel Aviv where they lived. It's four o'clock in the morning, and all of a sudden, Yisrael Mer, I don't want to say Yisrael, at that time he was known as Yisrael Mer, but Rabbi Lau, young Rabbi Lau, 
was awakened by a, a tremendous noise. There was a siren and there were fire engines and he looked out the window and the red, the sky was red. They lived in a neighborhood where it was not so uncommon for fires to break out at that time and they were, they could be deadly. There were many wooden structures and this fire seemed to be spreading and spreading and, and it was fearsome. And so Rav Lau, young Rav Lau, uh, wanted to wake the family and make sure everyone was safe. And then he starts to get up and he hears noises in the hallway of his in-law's home, where he's staying, where he's sleeping. And he opens the door and he sees the hallway and the living room of his in-law's home, and it's filled with people. And he sees his father-in-law, who's dressed in a, in a, a, a bathrobe, in, a, in a, a night robe. He's dressed in his robe, and he's standing there like a policeman. He's directing traffic. People are coming and going. People are walking. They lived on the top floor of a building. People are walking up the steps into the apartment and they're going down the steps. And the scene was just, he, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. And he later learned that this was a regular occurrence. Nebuch, every few months there was a fire and it was dangerous and could be devastating. And whenever a fire broke out, the residents of the neighborhood would come to Rabbi Frankel's home to deposit their valuables because they were confident that their treasure would be safe there and it might not be safe in their own home. And so what young Rabbi Lau saw when he opened the door and saw all this commotion at four in the morning, he saw his father-in-law, Rabbi Frankel, directing, you put your things there and you put your things here and you put your things here. And he saw on different little piles in the floor, valuables, pieces of silver, candlesticks, photographs, um, uh, Hanukkah menorahs, Kiddush cups, all of the people, things that people were worried about and they were bringing them to the rabbi's home to make sure they would be safe. One man rushed up and gave the rabbi a bag inside of which was a roll of money, his entire life savings that he was saving up for his daughter's wedding. And he gave it to Rabbi Lau for safekeeping until everything was safe because he knew that it would be safe there. He knew he could get it back. And then he saw a young woman walking up the steps to the apartment. And she walked into the apartment and on the floor of the apartment, she placed her baby because she knew that that's where her baby would be safe. And when young Rabbi Lau saw that, he said to himself, if I become a rabbi, which was his dream, I want to be that kind of rabbi. 
I want to be a kind of rabbi that the public has such complete trust. A rabbi that a mother would bring her most prized possession, her baby, because she knew that's where the baby would be safe. And years later, when Rav Yisrael Meir Lau was inaugurated as Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel, he told this story. And he said to the people who were assembled at that august occasion, he said, that image remains in my mind every day. And he said, I want to be honest with you. It's true, he said about himself. I know lots of Talmud. I know lots of halachic rulings. I know a lot of things that are in classic books of Jewish law. But the main question is what kind of rabbi am I going to be now? And he said, at that moment, becoming chief rabbi of Israel, he said, seeing my father-in-law, Rabbi Frankel, all those years ago in action, that is the clearest demonstration of what I think the ideal rabbi should be. And the fire was over that night and people came back to collect their belongings and they left reassured that there was one place that was safe, the home of their rabbi. And that knowledge gave them tremendous strength and faith. And that, Rabbi Lal says, has been what drives me in my rabbinate from that day until this day. And that, I can tell you, is what I look for when looking for and making for myself a rabbi. My friends, I want to wish you a great day, and I look forward to seeing you soon in person.